for um, and thank you for having me back this week. I had such a great time last week. I really especially enjoyed all of like the little moments we had for discussion. Um, so I hope to have a few more opportunities for us to talk together today about what we're learning. Um, so as Sina said, this is part two of our series on Abravanel and Sefer Yonah. Um, if you did not attend the first class last week, that's completely fine. Um, this session is really meant to be dealing with a totally separate topic and like a new set of questions. Um, and it's really focused on the end of the Sefer. So I might reference a couple of points from last time, but I don't think that it will be much of a barrier for anyone who wasn't here. And I'll just do like a very quick review in those places if necessary to catch you up if you weren't here with us last week. So uh, before we dive in, there were a couple of interesting conversations in the Chabura WhatsApp group after the last class. And I just wanted to address some of the things that came up uh, before we get into the text. So first thing that came up was related to the spelling and pronunciation of Abravanel's name, which was talked about at great length in the chat. Um, so as I said last time, this is a big matter of debate in the scholarship for a variety of reasons. Um, in many Portuguese documents from Abravanel's time period, his name is documented as we've been pronouncing it in class. Um, but his own son, Yehuda, actually preferred for it to be pronounced Abravanel with a B. So if you really want to know more about this, I really recommend uh, Ben Sion Netanyahu's book on Abravanel. He has an appendix there where he goes through the whole issue in a lot of detail. Um, and he explains why he prefers the pronunciation that we've been using together. And then if you want the counter argument, then uh, there's an article by Schneer Lyman. I'm going to put his um, I'm going to put his name in the title of the article here that includes why he prefers a Barbanel with the B. So uh, and that that article is cited in Eric Lowy's book and Lowy calls him a Barbanel. So anyway, that's just kind of like a brief way. If you really want to get into that, I would just start there. Um, as you know, here we're going to call him a Barbanel. Another question that came up uh, was related to an online essay, which was very interesting. Um, so someone sent it into the chat and they felt like it took Abravanel's interpretation of Sefer Yonah in the opposite direction of what we discussed last time. So what I just wanted to say here, and you know, maybe I should have clarified. No. I think you've been but muted. I, yeah, I got muted, but I'm back. Um, so I just wanted to clarify this more a little more. I think I briefly touched on it last time, but um, you know, this is just one way to read Sefer Yona, what we're doing together here. The reason that I love this Sefer so much is because it's very concise, it's only four parakim, and it's in my opinion, very ambiguous um, because it's so short. And, uh, you know, if you look at the Mefarshim from Ibn Ezra to Radak to Malbim to Abravanel, you will really walk away with quite different interpretations of the narrative, um, the main themes of the story, the purpose of the story, what the takeaway message is. Um, and so the way we're studying it together now is really just one of the ways into the Sefer. In terms of why Abravanel and Yonah, exactly as, as Sina said, you know, there's so much biographical scholarship out there, but most of the scholarship that's focused on the words of Abravanel are really about his commentary on Sefer Malachim, because he includes so much biographical information in the actual Perush, which is very unusual for a commentator. So people really like to dissect that. Um, there's a lot of discussion on his work on Sefer Devarim, on his Ateret Zekenim, in which he lays out a lot of his uh, messianic thinking and ideas about Ketzayamim, the end of days. But very little is written about his commentary on Tere Asar which is where we find Sefer Yonah. 
And personally, I think that here, this is really where we get a showcase of Abravanel's skills in literary analysis, in his sensitivity to dialogue in the text, um, his ability to uncover the inner psyche or inner workings of the biblical characters and like illuminate and open up their thought process for the reader. So I think what you get out of this approach and this, the focus of this series is something that is just not so available otherwise. So I thought that it would be uh, more fruitful for us to work on this together. So anyway, um, I welcome any critiques on Abravanel because like I said, this is not the only way to read the Sefer. There are so many ways to do it, Shivin Panim La Torah. Um, so just, you know, if you have a critique or a question as we're going on, just um, let me know. Okay, so with that, um, let's get into today's topic. So uh, actually, before we start, Sina, would you be able to share your screen with the source sheet by any chance? Okay, awesome. Let me get that I'm just going to keep, I'll just keep setting us up while you get that um, yep. there for everybody. This one here. There you go. Perfect. Can you see that? Yes. Okay, awesome. Um, okay, so last time we discussed Perak Aleph. Today, we're primarily going to be studying Perakim, Gimel, and Dalit. These are the final chapters of Sefer Yonah. And once again, um, we have a core question for our class, which is actually this time really broken into two issues that we're going to be discussing. So the first issue is, why was Yonah so distraught when God saved the people of Minbeth? So we're going to read the Pesukim inside. If you're not familiar with this aspect of the narrative, um, we will see that together. The next issue is, once God observed Yonah's distress, how did God educate Yonah to address his anger? So we're going to start by picking up after Yonah's time in the belly of the fish. So he was in the fish for three days and three nights. He offered this tefillah um, in which Abravanel and other Mefarshim say that Yonah did do teshuvah at that time for running away in Perak Aleph. Um, and at the end of Perak Bet, he is spit out of the fish back onto dry land. So I'm in the Pesukim in source one. Pesukim, Aleph, and Bet are God's second attempt to get Yonah to fulfill his mission of going to Nineveh and getting the people to do Teshuvah. And fortunately, this time, Yonah does what he's told, and he actually does go to the city. In Pasuk Dalit, he arrives there. So I'm reading inside Pasuk Dalit. So the previous Pasuk told us that Nineveh was a city that was essentially three days wide. It would take you three days to walk across the whole city. Yonah didn't even go in all the way. He went in one day's walk and he did the keriah. And he said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed or like reversed. It's kind of an interesting word, Nepachet. We'll talk about it in a second. Then immediately, it seems, the people of Nineveh get the message. Like right away, this, you know, miraculous reversal for the people actually occurs. So I'm in Pasuke. So it says the people of Nineveh believed in Elohim. We're going to talk about this in a second. They declared a fast. They wore sackcloth. Everybody old and young, they all kind of engaged in like this mourning. So notice here, like I said, that the Pasuk says Elohim. And in fact, every instance related to Nineveh's Teshuvah, in, a, in each one of these instances, the Pesukim used the word Elohim. So this is going to be important for Abravanel in a moment. So just keep that in mind. 
So like I said, the people mourn, they fast, and the king actually does the same. Oddly enough, in Pasuk Zayin, the king actually says that the animals in Nineveh are also supposed to fast. So we're not going to have time to get into this in depth today, but there's definitely a question of why this is necessary. Like, why would it help Nineveh's situation if their animals also weren't eating? Like, you know, are animals supposed to do teshuvah? Like, it's kind of an interesting situation here, but we're not going to be able to get too much into that today. I do want to now move to Pasuk Chet, which is very important. So I'm reading inside. So again, the animals apparently also wear sackcloth, which is very interesting. So everybody, like I said, wears the sack. They call out to Elohim. Um, and everybody returns from their evil ways. And what were these evil ways? Hechamas asher bekapehem, the violence that um, that they had all participated in. So this here in Pasuklet is really actually our first clue where we begin to understand what Ninvez sin actually was. So if you recall in Pasuk Aleph of the entire Sefer, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, when God first, or sorry, it's Pasuk Bet, when God first tells Yonah to go to Nineveh, he just says, go to Nineveh, ki altara atam lefanai, because their evil has become known before me, or like I, I recognize the evil in Nineveh. But we don't actually know at that point in the Sefer what the Ra'ah was. God doesn't tell Yonah why he's really taken a notice in Nineveh, it just says they've done something bad. So here is where we actually get the first clue as to what that Ra'ah was. We see that it was violence or Hamas. So we're going to come back to this in a moment, but this is very important in understanding how Yonah reacts to what happens later in the Sefer. So hold that in the back of your head. Next in Pasuk Tet, the king essentially explains why he's commanding the people of Nineveh to mourn. So I'm reading Pasuk Tet. Who knows, said the king, we got to try because maybe God will forgive us. Maybe God will change his mind. He'll turn back from his anger so that we will not be destroyed. And the king did the right thing because in fact, in Pasuk Yod, Ninveh's efforts are immediately recognized. Pasuk says, God saw what the people of Ninveh did. He saw that they had changed their ways and God decided not to punish them. He decided not to destroy the city. So it worked, right? God's plan worked. Yonah went to Nineveh. He proclaimed the Kiryah. He said what he was supposed to say. And the people immediately listened to him. And apparently their Teshuvah was effective because God did not destroy the city. Then Perak Dalit, Pasuk Aleph, we get this super just perplexing reaction from Yonah. So I'm going to read the next three Pesukim because they're very important. So Pasuk Aleph, Perak Dalit, This just angered Yonah greatly, and he was grieved. Yonah prayed to God, and he said, God, I told you so. This is exactly what I said when I was still on my own land. This is exactly why I tried to run away to Tarshish. Ki adati, because I knew. Ki el I knew, God, that you were compassionate, that you were slow to anger, that you were so kind, and that you were going to just forgive this punishment. And now, says Yonah, because of this, because you forgave the people of Minbet, just kill me. I would rather die. I don't even want to be alive anymore. 
And then God says in Pasuk Dal, God says, are you really that angry? And after God says this to Yonah, Yonah leaves the city of Nebeth. So we'll catch up with him in a moment. But for now, I would like to hear from you. Why is Yonah like, what, what is up with this reaction? Why is Yonah so angry right now? And in your answer, I'd like for you to consider this first. Yonah had just agreed to go on this mission at the end of Parak Bet. So although he had, you know, tried to avoid this for whatever reasons initially, we have to assume that now he's at least somewhat on board. So what did he think was going to happen? Like, what is, what is, where's this, what's the shock here? And why is he so angry? Does anyone have any ideas? You can just shout it out or type it in the chat. Ashur. Okay. Aaron, say what you mean by Ashur for people who weren't here last time. I'm sorry, I'm just not driving, but Ashur, because Ashur will destroy, you know, the Malchut Israel eventually. Yeah. Okay. So something that we discussed last time, um, which is very important that Abravanel points out, is that there's a prophecy in Yeshayahu which says that Ashur is going to be the nation to eventually exile B'nai Israel. And Abravanel says that Yonah was aware of this prophecy. And he knew also that Nineveh was the capital of Ashur. So he was very reticent to have any hand in what would eventually amount to Ashur's uh, survival and their ability to then eventually exile B'nai Israel. So, okay, so maybe he was reflecting yet again on this prophecy and how he had participated in it or something like that. Okay, um, we okay. there's a partial answer maybe here in the chat. Ibuka, if you want to... Oh. Okay, mistake. Okay, anybody else have any ideas about why Yona was so angry? It's also okay if you don't. Like, it's. I think it's very bizarre. Like, it's hard to know at this point. Um, was he frustrate, frustrated at their eagerness to return? Hmm, okay. Uh, right. He had, sorry, Rob, just a second. Because he didn't want to go in the first place. Maybe he's maybe he's jealous of their willingness to see the light, so to speak, because he's got his own concerns. Okay. And here, and here is a foreign nation who are willing to listen to what God has to say. Right. And I think what you're saying is like, Yonah is really struggling with everything that God has told him so far. And yet here are these people who just immediately, you know, seemingly in seconds, like believe what Yonah has to say. It's almost like, is he envious that he can't accept things as easily as the people of Nebeth? That's very interesting, actually. Um, Okay, Rob says he disagrees with how God runs the world. He believes in strict justice. Okay, very good. We're going to see this. There's a question of what what is strict justice in this case? What does Yonah think strict justice looks like? So that's very good. Thank you. Uh, Simon says, Yonah felt that he ended up with an egg on his face because he prophesied destruction, which didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So this was actually something that uh, we saw last time in a Midrash. So the Midrash actually says that the reason Yonah didn't want to go to Ninbez because he thought the people would call him a Navi Sheker, because if they did Teshuvah and then the Nebuah didn't come true, they would all just think he was a liar. And Abravanel was like, that's not right. He was like, if Yonah went to Nimbeh they weren't destroyed, of course they would believe him. They wouldn't not believe him. They would be like, look, we did what the Navi said and we were, and we survived. So 
yeah, there's an interesting debate there that we discussed last time. Okay, good. Great ideas. Thank you so much. Um, so, okay. So this reaction from Yonah, his anger, this in fact is one of Abravanel's questions that he asks straight out on this parak. And as we already said, it's one of our core questions for today as well. So I'm reading inside now, source two. So Hashanit, again, don't worry about what number this what number question this is for Abravanel, but Abravanel says, what's going on? Why was Yonah so angry? What was so novel, in fact, about what was going on right now? Didn't Yonah know that this is what was going to happen? Isn't this exactly why he tried to run away? Because he thought that God would forgive the people of Nineveh. And again, remember, Yonah thought that regardless of whether you take the Abravanel's approach or the Midrash's approach, like there's some dire consequence for B'nai Israel here that is preventing Yonah from wanting to go on this mission. And nonetheless, at some point after getting spit out by the fish, Yonah decides to go. So why, says Abravanel, what did he think before he went in the belly of the fish and then afterwards? Like what changed? Why is he then angry now? In other words, why would Yonah resolve to go to Nineveh if the most fundamental issue remained the same? God was probably still going to forgive them as long as they did Teshuvah. So why did he decide to go? I think what's important to notice here is that in the very formulation of this question, I think Abravanel is opening the possibility that something had shifted in Yonah's mind. And there were new considerations or justifications at play when he set out on his mission for the second time. So we'll have to wait a moment to see exactly what that shift is, but just keep that in mind. Okay. So as we saw in the Pesukim, Yonah is not only furious at this outcome, but he even asks God to kill him. So this actually represents Yonah's second death wish in the Sefer, because remember in Paragalif, he said, just throw me overboard, right? And I'm assuming he thought he wasn't going to make it. He did, I don't think he thought he was going to get swallowed by a fish. Um, and there are even more death wishes from Yonah coming. Now, at least in Perak Aleph, when Yonah asked to get thrown overboard, Abravanel uh, quotes a Midrash that says that Yonah was really just acting as other Nevi'im do. He was putting his life on the line to save B'nai Israel, and that actually is a characteristic of a Navi. But this current request doesn't really read quite as noble as that first time. So I'm reading inside Abravanel source three. Is there anyone more insane in the world? I love this. Who would ask to die? Like, who does that? You got to be crazy to do this. And especially for this reason, why does Yonah need to die just because the people of Nineveh were saved? Why would Yonah die? Because the people of Nineveh didn't die. How 
how could you not have made this request, especially after being in the fish's belly, having this whole experience, swearing that he was going to go out and fulfill his mission, having God like bring him back just for that purpose and then asking to die? Like it just doesn't add up. Abravanel now like really takes a dig at Yonah. He's like, look, <laughs> there are other Nevi'im who are in like really, you know, difficult situations. Abraham Avinu, he wanted to save the people of Sodom. He was distraught over it. Abraham didn't ask God to kill him. Like, why does Yonah have to do that? So I just, I don't know. I think that whole, that whole thing from Abravanel was, was very interesting. And also, as we saw last time, like very critical. He can be pretty sharp with, <laughs> with Yonah, I think. Um, Okay, so before going further, I also want to point out here that already in his setup, I think that Abravanel is carefully trying to distinguish between Yonah's anger and his request to die. I think that Abravanel is being careful not to assume necessarily that Yonah would want to um, want to die for exactly the same reason that he's angry. Um, I'm saying this because I think Abravanel could have rolled Yonah's anger and his death wish all into one question, but he's very careful to separate these issues into two distinct questions in the parak. So we're going to see how that plays out in a moment, but that's just a little preview for what we're about to discuss. Okay, so in order to answer these two questions, Abravanel is going to take us into Yonah's head to help us understand Yonah's misconceptions about two aspects of how God operates. So the first one is that Abravanel says that Yonah had a misconception about how Teshuvah works and what constitutes Teshuvah Shelema. So this kind of goes back to what somebody brought up in the chat, Rob, about like strict justice, like what is considered justice? That kind of folds in here to this question of like, what is Teshuvah Shelema? And then the second is that Abravanel says that Yonah had a misconception about the standards and or expectations that God has for B'nai Israel and the Goyim. Okay, so any questions um, before we continue? A couple people said in the chat, okay, Moshe asked to be killed. Moshe asked to be erased from the Sefer. Yeah, okay, so Abravanel doesn't mention that. <laughs> I think he's trying to, um, I think he's kind of trying to compare Yonah to people who didn't do that uh, to show that it's not necessary for a Navi to, to ask to die. Um, with Abraham, he prophesied destruction that did not happen. Not sure if it makes a difference. Could be, I guess maybe what uh, what Vidat is saying is like, Abraham, I guess, got his way. So maybe he was satisfied with the outcome. It was a little bit of a different story. Um, okay, any other questions before we move on? Okay. Could it be that, um, could it be that uh, uh, Yona was concerned that, uh, let's say, as they did Teshuva very quickly, one could have the concern that they could as quickly also turn back. You know, someone who goes in one direction very quick can also go the other one very quick and that the threat uh, arising from that could even happen during his life. Abravanel actually says exactly that. So we're going to see that in a second. Yeah, very good. Okay. Um. All right, so before we dive into Yonah's misconceptions, we need to return to this question of what Ninved did wrong. So like I said, all we know from Perak Aleph of the Sefer is ki altara atam lefanai, right? God is going to destroy Ninved because their evil has come before him. So what is this ra'ah that Ninved had done that was so wrong in God's eyes? 
So as we saw in Peret Gimel, Pasuk Chet, the king of Nineveh orders his subjects to cease their violence, to end their Hamas. And according to Abravanel, and also Radak, by the way, it was this Hamas that was really Nineveh's Ra'ah. This was their Chet that prompted God to intervene by sending Yonah to the city. And as we also mentioned, we discussed how Nineveh is the capital of Ashur, and there was this pre-existing prophecy that Ashur was going to be the ones to exile B'nai Israel. So if we look now at the bold in source number four, we can see how Abravanel uses Pasuklet, which we just saw, to define Nineveh's sin. So he says, so that's the direct quote from Pasuklet. So God set out to save Ashur from their Ra'ah because of the violence that, that they were committing. That's exactly the quote from Yeshayahu. So again, because of this future prophecy, God had to save Ashur. He had to make sure that Ashur's capital was around in order for this prophecy to come true. Now we're going to come to the implications of this plan in a minute. Like the fact that God is intervening to eventually like do something that's harmful to B'nai Israel is obviously like very complicated. Um, so we're going to come back to this in a minute. But I also want to point out here that Abravanel uses the Pesukim, I think, to show that it's very easy for people to understand why violence is wrong. It's intuitive almost. And so I'm reading now in source five. So when Yonah explained to the people of Nineveh that violence was what was evil in God's eyes, right? The Pasuk says the people of Nineveh believed in Elohim. It seems just immediate. Without Yonah having to say anything except for that one line of in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed or Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh seems to have immediately intuited that violence is totally antithetical to a society and that they needed to change. So I set this up because it's important to understand exactly what Nineveh was being held responsible for in God's eyes, specifically, before turning to Yonah's misconceptions. So with that, we can now explore Yonah's first misunderstanding about how God operates. And like I said, this has to do with what constitutes Teshuvah Shalema, what constitutes complete Teshuvah. So Teshuvah is really something that Yonah grapples with throughout the entire Sefer. He has to consider the implications of Nineveh doing Teshuvah and what that will mean for the future of B'nai Israel. But he also has to do Teshuvah himself um, to repent for trying to circumvent his mission initially. One aspect of Teshuvah that Yonah seems to come around to fairly readily, actually, is this notion of temporary Teshuvah, which Ben just brought up. Meaning the idea that somebody could do Teshuvah, but then soon after revert to their previous behaviors. So I'm reading inside source six in the bold. So according to Abravanel, when Yonah is in the belly of the fish, he has this realization that temporary teshuvah could still be valuable. 
Now I have to say it's a little odd. Um, Abravanel kind of just like throws this in here as a concern that apparently Yonah had. Um, and it's something that was preventing him from going to Ninveh in the first place. Like he doesn't mention earlier that Yonah thought, oh, maybe Ninveh will do Teshuvah, but it will only last for a short period of time. And then they'll just go back to their evil ways. He doesn't mention that prior to this point. So it's a little interesting. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little hard for me to understand. And it's not so clear where exactly Abravanel gets this notion from. Um, but he is, I think, trying to emphasize here that this is an area of Teshuvah that Yonah can wrap his head around. He can finally, after being in the fish, make peace with the idea that even if Ninbez Teshuvah is temporary, it's still worthwhile. So that's something that Yonah can understand. What is much, much harder for Yonah to grapple with is the definition of Teshuvah Shelema. If the people of Ninbed did Teshuvah Shelema, then they certainly deserve to be saved. If they didn't, then they should have been destroyed, right? So how does Yonah define complete Teshuvah? So when we were reading the Pesukim at the beginning of our discussion, we pointed out this word Elohim, right? This is the word that's used in describing Ninbed's Teshuvah. They believed in Elohim. Elohim saw what Nin- that Ninbed had changed its ways, etc. And Abravanel is very attuned to the use of this word. So I'm reading now in source seven. It's labeled partial teshuvah. When Ninveh did teshuvah, Abravanel says, I want to make it very clear, they only did teshuvah on the violence. They did not have some like philosophical revolution and change their beliefs. They were still Obde Avodazara. They were still hechziku be'emunatam hanif sedet. Abravanel calls it like the um, their deficient emunah. Ve'hu amro vayara Elohim et hamasehem. So when the pasuk says that God saw what Ninveh had done, rotzel omar, what this really means is shebemitzvot hamasiyot benam lechavrehem shavu midartam hara'ah. Ninveh changed its behavior benadam lechaverod. They changed how they acted between themselves. Aval lo shavu me'emunotehem. But they did, they did not change their belief system. Nonetheless, God still forgave them. Because the Gezerah, meaning God's plan to destroy Ninveh, was only contingent upon their violence. So once they had done Teshuvah for the violence, even though they were still of Deavadazara, that was fine. God forgave them. Abravanel, I think, is also pointing this out because this sense, this sensitivity to the distinction between Elohim and Hashem in the Tanakh is very common. And the Mefarshim pick up on this all the time. So generally, what the Mefarshim point out is that Elohim refers to this um, kind of this general sense of morality. Um, I think the best example is the Torah says that Amalek were lo yare Elohim. Um, with your at Elohim, meaning that uh, they would have had the sense of morality, the sense of like basic fundamental goodness to not like attack B'nai Israel from behind. So when they're not your Elohim, they don't have this like basic understanding of what is moral, what's a good social order. So, so to here, this is apparently something that Ninveh was lacking, but when they realized it, right, when they suddenly developed this sense of Elohim, this sense of morality, they did not suddenly then change their belief system. Right? They did not suddenly become this monotheistic society. They didn't give up Avodazara. They just developed a better sense of how to live in like a better social order. And that's exactly what God wanted them to do. That was the only thing that the Gezerah was contingent upon. But for Yonah, 
that was just abhorrent. So I'm reading now in source number eight, the Abravanel. Umi peneze, vayera el yonara agedola vayicharlo, veharaa shenizkerakan hucholi, shebeitzavon libo nafal vechala choli, vera agedola ubikesh lamut, vahayaze lefishiona chashav, shelota shub hagezera me alehem, ki im sheyashuvu midarkamaraa, vayemunot uba maasim. So when Yonah realized that all it took for Ninveh to be saved was that they do teshuvah on the Hamas, he, Abravanel says he became physically sick. He became like physically ill over it. And he asked to die because he thought that, okay, he knew, I guess, that like the Gezerah included the violence, but he thought, how could it be that God would forgive people who didn't do teshuvah on the Avodah also? And so when Yonas, that's why it says be'emunot uba ma'asim, their belief and their actions. So when he saw that all they had to do was do teshuvah on the Hamas, he was just distraught. I'm continuing now in source eight. Aval kashira asheh ziku ba'avodah zarashahem ve'lo asu teshuvah ve'masheh benam lamakom. When he saw they didn't do teshuvah in their relationship with God, shehu ha'ikar, which is the most important thing in Yonah's mind, ela b'masheh benam l'chavrehem, and they only did teshuvah for their actions between one another, u'she'al koza nicham Hashem al-ra'ah, nonetheless God forgave them. Here's the key. Nitkayem b'machshavato shehaya maso panim badavar. Yonah was like, the system is broken. God is favoring the people of Ninveh. God is breaking the rules. He's showing them favoritism. Masopanin. Suddenly, the entire system of how God relates to Bnei Israel and the Goyim is broken in Yonah's mind. So how then did Yonah define this system of how God relates to the Goyim and how God relates to Bnei Israel? So let's move to the Abravanel in source nine. This is under the label double standards. So it seems like Yonah had kind of set up this spectrum of Chet, basically. And in his mind, Avodazara in this case was way worse than Hamas. So Nineveh should have done Teshuvah on both. But since they didn't, in Yonah's mind, God just shouldn't have forgiven them. The only explanation then in Yonah's mind for why God forgave Ninveh is because he was treating Ninveh as the white of his eye. This literally means like God was showing them uh, favoritism. And this is a phrase that's actually usually reserved for B'nai Israel. God was like holding Ninveh in this special place. It's like a metaphor for something precious. And then Yonah says to himself, well, wait a minute. God has punished B'nai Israel for our Avodazara in the past. Why then is he forgiving the people of Nineveh for their Avodazara? Why, why, what is this double standard? We can't do Avodazara, but Nineveh can. I know this is kind of probably sounding kind of weird, but we're going to unpack it in a second. Yonadan is not only angry because it appears that God has a double standard in that he expects B'nai Israel to do Teshuvah for all these things, including Avodah Zarah, but he doesn't hold Nimbet to the same standard. No, 
it's that this double standard is then being used as a way to preserve Nineveh so that eventually they can be a vehicle, Mohenet Laval Yisrael, a vehicle to destroy B'nai Israel in the future. That's just heartbreaking. Like the system is broken and the system is going to be broken in order to harm B'nai Israel in the future. Also want to point out here that when Abravanel says that Yonah used his sechel, he's pointing out a flaw in Yonah's logic. He's not using the word sechel to say like, oh, Yonah exhibited this superior sense of rationale and he reasoned out this whole thing. Abravanel is like trying to set you up for the fact that like the logical conclusions here don't quite make sense. So in short, Yonah had the following misconception. If God requires B'nai Israel to do teshuvah for Avodah then Ninveh must be held to the same standard. So therefore, if Ninveh only did teshuvah on the Hamas, right, on their violence, then God should not have forgiven them. But since God saved Ninveh, Yonah concludes, okay, there must be a double standard here between B'nai Israel and the Goyim. Because if B'nai Israel had been in this situation, they surely would have been destroyed if they hadn't done teshuvah on the Avodah Zarah. And that's why Yonah is so angry, says Abravanel, because of this double standard. Okay, so now... If you're not confused right now, I think you should be. <laughs> um, I want to hear from you. What is a hole in Yonah's logic? What doesn't make sense? Is it considered Abodah Zarah if uh, non-Jews are worshipping? Isn't Abodah Zarah just a category for Jews? Right. Like, why? what is this assumption that, like, the Goyim... This entire assumption that, like, there's the same standard at all is kind of bizarre, right? Like, we have our own mitzvot. So, like, why do the Goyim have yeah. to do that? But, I mean, we don't, we don't have the same standard because the thing to Philat Shalomor, when he, the Gemara says, the Philat Shalomor, he concludes the Mikdash, that God should listen to the Goyim, even if they don't. Um, there's double standard that God is only doing them themselves. So... The guy should go through this, and even if you don't compile all the discourse or whatever. But uh, I thought, I, I, should I say in the chat, I thought about the opposite point. We now got depressed because he said, Am Israel has Abu Dazara, you know, Abu Dazara, Shukut Amin, and Gimarao. That's why the discussion was the first time, but Gimarahut Israel, all the more so, it was prevalent all the time. And they, and they had a prophecy, just like we had a prophecy, but we didn't stop. But they, they stop at least some us, so they are in the best um, in the best status than us. That's, that's what I think. I thought. I yeah. I'm gonna. I think it's a little hard to hear you, to be honest. But I'm. I think we're about to say something similar. I have an idea, kind of, of how to straighten this out. But um, I think we're on the same page. Okay. Sam, my father-in-law. Thank you for coming. Says um, they have Sheva mitzvah b'nei noach. Okay. Right. So maybe Yonah is drawing on this, like there actually is some standard for the Goyim and Ninveh is now in violation of that. Okay. And Ohad says also because they were only warned about the Hamas, we were always warned about Abu Dazara. Okay. Very good. Yeah. This is going to come into play later. Okay. So um, I have this little, uh, I have this little chart here, this little flow chart um, because this really did bother me, and I think we need a more specific way to articulate Yonah's logic. Um, so Abravanel, what I'm about to say is not like uh, explicit in Abravanel. This is my own interpretation of what Abravanel says. So, you know, feel free to have your own. But um, I think that in this instance, the reason that Yonah was making this equivalence between the standards for B'nai Israel and at the very least the standards for Ninveh 
is because here Nineveh had merited God's intervention because a Navi was coming to tell them to do Teshuvah. That's not something that all the Goyim get, right? That's like pretty unique, pretty unique. And that's also generally very unique to B'nai Israel. So I wonder if Yonah thought, okay, now that Nineveh is on this status where they're going to get a Navi to tell them to turn their lives around, they now have like this elevated sense of, of Hashkacha, right? And so therefore their behavior also needs to meet an elevated set of standards for people who merit this kind of intervention from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like B'nai Israel, in other words. So I'm saying this because I think that otherwise Yonah's assumption just seems like kind of far-reaching. Um, it just seems like so illogical. But like I said, Abravanel doesn't mention this point about like Yonah drawing this equivalence between, you know, who receives Nebuah and, you know, who receives God's intervention in this way. But to me, this makes the this makes his rationale a little more understandable, like a, a little more legitimate, I guess. Again, like this is a Navi Israel. He's not, you know, he's not fool, he's not dumb. So we have to kind of make this make sense, I think. Okay, so um moving to source 10. Abravanel clarifies that Yonah wanted to die then. Remember, Abravanel already distinguished between Yonah's anger and his death wish in his very in the setup of his questions. So moving to source 10, Abravanel clarifies that Yonah wanted to die not because of the double standard, but because of its implications. Now that God had saved Nineveh, Yonah knew that Ashur would be able to successfully uh, exile B'nai Israel. So Abravanel says in source 10, First of all, just notice all of like the powerful self-identification here with B'nai Israel. Admati, Ami, Moladati. Yonah is so tied up in his national concerns. I mean, he is so, so part of B'nai Israel. He, he can't help but like feel the national pain. So Yonah is saying here, I don't want to live to see the destruction of B'nai Israel. It would be better to die than to see the evil that God is going to pour out on my nation. I don't want to see the destruction of my birthplace. Thus it's clear, says Abravanel, that Yonah wanted to die, not necessarily because of the double standard, that was bad, for sure, that caused Yonah to be angry, but he actually wanted to die because he did not want to live to see the destruction of his people. He didn't want to live to see the destruction of B'nai Israel. Okay, we're going to keep going now. I would like to pause for questions, but I think we're getting a little short on time, so I want to make sure we get to the end. So, Let's keep going and understand how Abravanel now interprets the rest of Sefer Yonah as God correcting Yonah's assumption about Teshuvah and the standards for B'nai Israel and the Goyim. So in Paragdalit, after Yonah witnesses Nibbe being saved, he walks out of the city and he builds a little sukkah to shade himself from the sun. And then just like God summoned the fish in Paragbet, God summons this plant or this tree called a kikayon. So I'm reading in Pasuk Bav. So God has this kikayon tree grow. It grows over Yonah's head. 
Um, Abravanel says the leaves were very large and they shielded Yonah from the sun. Yonah was thrilled. He was so happy that Kikayon was there. Then God brings this worm and it wiggles into the Kikayon and it sucks it dry and the plant dies. And then because the Kikayon had gone away, then God brings this strong east wind, which Abravanel says was very hot, and it beats down on Yonah's head and he faints. And once again, Yonah just can't handle it. And he says, God, just please kill me. It would be better for me to die than to live. I'm moving now to Pasuk Yod. Oh, sorry. So here in Pasuk Ted, I'm not going to read it inside. But once again, God asks Yonah, are you really that upset about the Kikayon? But this time Yonah answers. The last time God asked him that about the people of Nineveh, Yonah didn't respond. This time God answers and he says, yes, it would be better for me to die. God says, okay, wait a minute, Yonah, you cared about this kikayon, you didn't work for it, you didn't grow it, you didn't toil over it, you had nothing to do with it, it just appeared overnight, and then it disappeared within 24 hours. Should I not care about Nineveh, says God, this great city where there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and many animals as well. Here we get the animals again. It's so interesting. And that's how the Sefer ends. That's it. With this question from God, and we don't even know if you're not response. So what we have to figure out now is how does the appearance and immediate disappearance of the Kikayon address Yonah's misconceptions about Teshuvah and about God's standards for B'nai Israel and the Goyim? So let's return to Abravanel, who's going to take us through the end of the Sefer. I'm going to summarize here just a little bit so that we can get to um, the most important parts of the analysis. So recall that in Pasuk Vav, we learn that Vaismach Yonah Hakikayon Simcha Gedola, right? Yonah was super happy about the Kikayon. And in explaining this reaction, Abravanel says that even though Yonah had this little sukkah to shield him from the sun, right? Like I said, the leaves of the Kikayon provided even more shade and Yonah was very comfortable because of this miracle that God had provided with the Kikayon. He felt comfortable, he was sheltered, he was protected. When God then removes the Kikayon and summons this wind, this Ruach Kadim Harishit, the Pasuk clearly says that Yonah was like in a lot of physical pain, like he he fainted because of it. And not only was he physically suffering, says Abravanel, but Yonah was also philosophically suffering. And that's why he asked, that's why he asked God to kill him again. Because Abravanel says Yonah felt like at this point, God was just torturing him. Just like Abravanel says, B'nai Israel will eventually be tortured by Ashur. And not only did Yonah want to live to see that eventual, you know, exile and torturing of B'nai Israel, he doesn't want to suffer right now either. He can't believe that God is forcing him to endure this like physical and philosophical pain. It's this death wish from Yonah at this point that triggers God's corrective Musar, if you will, to Yonah, because God sees that Yonah is bouncing from one extreme to the next. He goes so quickly from Simcha Gedola to asking God to kill him. And Yonah is like, er, and God says, I gotta, I gotta get in, I gotta get into this here. Like I gotta fix what's going on. 
And according to Abravanel, God notices actually a contradiction or points out a contradiction in Yonah's plight. So I'm just summarizing the first part of source 12, and we're going to then read the end of it inside. When God asks Yonan Pasuktet, Hahetev Haralacha, God is saying, if it's really true, Yonah, that you would rather die, why were you so upset when the Kikayon dried up? Right? You're contradicting yourself. It would actually seem, Yonah, that you want to survive. Isn't that why you were so happy when the Kikayon appeared? Because it extended your physical comfort in this world. And then you were upset when I killed it. Because then once again, you were physically suffering, you were close to death. So it actually seems like you want to live, right? You were so happy when you were more comfortable. And Yonah says, no, 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 I'm not contradicting myself. Death really is better. I was just mad about the Kikayon because when it comes to dying a quick and painless death versus suffering on the way to dying, then suffering is much worse, right? Which is the situation, God, that you've put me in now. And that's why I was angry because you were torturing me. Now Abravanel says, after Yonah, you know, says this, God gets to the etzim ha'inyan, the really like the crux of the issue. So I'm reading now in the bold in source 12. What is this pasuk here of like, oh, you were so concerned, Yonah, about the kikayon? What does this really mean? God says, Yonah, you're so upset over this kikayon that you had nothing to do with. You, you didn't work for it. It just appeared. That's the key. How then could I not care about Ninve, which is my creation? And it's not only my creation, but it's my It brings honor to my name as a creator. It's a giant city. Quite different than a Kikayon, in fact, this little tree. So it's therefore completely legitimate, says God, for me to be invested in the invented survival. It's this huge city. So then God sets up this little mashal. He says, Yonah, when you, you say you only care about the kikayon because it prevented you from suffering further, right? Because it supplied you with shade. That can't possibly be. You can't divorce the benefit from its source. That would be like God saying, I only care about Ninveh because of the honor of the greatness of the, its civilization, but I don't care about the people itself. God says, you can't do that. You can't, you can't, like I said, divorce the benefit of something from its source. In other words, this mashal, right? I put this little chart here so that you can keep track of all the pieces, but Abravanel actually refers to this mashal as a kalva homer. If Yonah received shade or benefit from the kikayon, but had no part in creating it, Kalva Homer, if God receives benefit or tsel, right, shade from Ninveh, then Kalva Homer, if Ninveh is one of God's creations, of course God has to care about it. Of course he has to take an interest in it. Of course he has to care about its people. So at this point, I think you could ask, why does God need the glory that Ninveh provides, right? It might seem like God is saying here that he needs kavod and God doesn't really need anything. So Abravanel doesn't address this specifically. I think it would take a significantly deeper uh, analysis into his other writings to kind of get to the bottom of that. That is just a question I want to point out that I have on this point in Abravanel, this emphasis of God that like 
you know, Ninveh like glorifies my name. It's unclear like why God needs that. Um, but I think, you know, you could say that the emphasis here is really like, this is one of God's creations. It does benefit God. Like it, it causes people to like glorify the creator and God just can't, he can't again, divorce the benefit from his own, like the, th- the very thing he created. So now God has to address Yonah's issue with Avodazara of how Ninveh could be forgiven, right? If the people were still Obde Avodazara. So I'm reading now source 13. Okay, so then Yonah says, fine. I care about, I accept the fact, God, that I have to care about Kikayon, right? Because that was the source of my, of my benefit. And Kava Homer, you have to care about Ninveh because you created it. But Ninveh is still a city of Avodazara, and they didn't do Teshuvah from that. So how do you explain that? So here's the answer that Abravanel fills in based on the final pasuk. When it comes to Ninvez Bechira, in terms of Avodazara, it's as if they are mute. It's as if they're Bilti Medabrim, meaning they don't actually have complete Bechira in this area. Why? Since Ninveh did not receive the Torah and they were not commanded in the mitzvot, it is not fitting, it is not fitting to punish them for serving Avodazara. So this is kind of what somebody brought up, but I think it's very unique the way Abravanel is centering this notion of Bechira in this case. So here we're arriving at this major correction to Yonah's conception about the rules for how God relates to Bnei Israel and the Goyim. We're now untangling the fact that there's not only a difference between how God relates to these different groups of people, but why. And it all comes down to the Torah and the Bechira, this sense of Bechira that the, Torah, that the Torah provides. So I'm continuing in source 12 where we left off. Omnam Yisrael shall al har Sinai, al lo elokim acherim al panai, en potran By contrast, B'nai Israel, who stood at Har Sinai, who heard directly from God, right, the mitzvah of Lo right? They heard this directly from Hashem. It would not be fitting to permit them to do Avodazara, to forgive them for doing Avodazara, exactly the opposite of Ninbed. In other words, since B'nai Israel had the knowledge of what they learned on Har Sinai, they had the Bechira, they had the choice to act appropriately. And when they act in contrary to the tenets of the Berit, they are culpable. They have to be held responsible. Yonah thought if Ninveh was going to be subject to God's intervention via, via Navi, again, that's my interpretation, then they should be held to the same standards as B'nai Israel. And if Avodazara is wrong for B'nai Israel, then it should also be wrong for Ninveh. And think about it. Like, Avodazara denies the fundamental truth of God's existence. And here, God is specifically intervening in, in order to ensure Ninveh's survival. So how can Ninveh continue to deny God's existence by practicing Avodazara? Think that, like, you can really start to see how this was so troubling to Yonah. So what does God help Yonah understand? In fact, God is not judging everyone's actions equally. He judges people based on the level of Bechira that they have in a given situation based on the information available to them. If Ninveh doesn't know, because they don't have the Torah, because they don't have the Beri, if Ninveh doesn't know that Abu Dazara is wrong, they can't be held responsible for not doing Teshuvah for it. 
Another way to say this is that the extent of your knowledge impacts the extent of your Bechira, right? And thus dictates how you can be evaluated by God for your culpability in a given situation. If you don't know that you have two choices, right? If you don't know that you have a choice to be an Obde Akum versus to believe in God, then you do you actually have a choice, right? Like you need to have a sense of what the options are. So let's, before we end, just think about why Nimbek can then be held responsible for its violence. This comes back to what I pointed out earlier in source five, which is that I think Abravanel is highlighting this notion that Nimbek immediately recognized that its violent tendencies needed to end in order to show that that was something that was intuitive. That was something that was intuitively wrong. Most people want to live in a safe and well-functioning society, right? They don't necessarily need it to be explained to them in detail um, why it's better to live in harmony rather than to live in violence. But I think what Abravanel is pointing out is that Avodazara is not necessarily the same. It might not be obvious um, to abandon Avodazara. You need the Torah, in fact, and the unique aspects of the Berit to tell you that. So let's just summarize what we discussed today, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Our core questions were, why is Yonah so angry when Nineveh is saved? That was our first question. And then our second question was, how does God educate Yonah throughout the Sefer? And here, Abravanel helped us understand that Yonah was angry because he perceived a double standard for B'nai Israel and Nineveh. He noticed that Nineveh was forgiven just by doing Teshuvah on its Hamas, on its violence, but not for its Avodazara. Even though both Ninveh and in this case, right, in this case, Ninveh and B'nai Israel merit God's intervention, Ninveh seems to have to do less to correct its behavior in order for God to forgive them. God then uses the Kikayon to educate Yonah to teach him two things. First, you can't divorce the benefit from its source, right? Since God not only created Ninveh, but also benefits from its very existence, it's completely justified for God to intervene on Ninveh's behalf. Yonah should not be upset about that. Second of all, God teaches Yonah that people are judged based on the extent of their Bechira. Without the mitzvot contained in the Beri, Ninveh does not have sufficient Bechira to be culpable for its Avodazara. B'nai Israel, on the other hand, is completely aware of its responsibility to only serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we are held responsible when we deviate from this path. I want to end now with what I think are two essential takeaways in this sefer that I think are highlighted in Bravanel. So if you were with us last time, we spent a lot of the first session explaining how Yonah educates the sailors on the boat, and he rectifies their misconceptions, specifically of Sechar Ba'onesh. But the sailors are not the only ones in the Sefer, obviously, who need to be corrected. Yonah needs his, his assumptions straightened out by Hashem himself. And I think that Abravanel goes to great lengths to highlight the moments in Sefer Yonah in which fundamental philosophical misconceptions are rectified and also goes on to elaborate how they are corrected. So this entire framework um, reminds me of a pasuk from Mishle. I'm not sure if it's on the source sheet or not, but um, I'll just read it. So Mishle, Peret Gimel Pasuk Yod Aleph says, Musar Adonai b'ni al-tim'as takots Don't reject God's discipline, my son. Don't don't abhor God's rebuke. So this is, um, yeah, Musar and Tochacha. And Pasuk Yodbet says, Ki et asher et ben Because it's the people who God loves, who he rebukes, like a father who favors his son. I think that what these Pasukim are highlighting is that we might think of rebuke as negative, right? We might think of it as like 
ill-intended criticism, something that we don't want. But Michelet is saying it's actually an expression of love. It's the people who God loves specifically, the people who he views as his children, who he takes the time to rebuke. You can extend this to many relationships. If you don't care about somebody, you're not going to let them know when they do something wrong. If you, if a teacher doesn't care about their students, they're not going to try to improve their students' behavior. Let them just do whatever, right? I don't care how they turn out. But that is not how God relates to the Nevi'im. That's what Sefer Yonah shows us. And that is certainly not how God relates to B'nai Israel. We could very easily think about Sefer Yonah as like this tug of war between God and Yonah, with God trying to get Yonah to do the right thing, to complete his mission. We could see the end of the Sefer as like this tense argument between God and Yonah. And we don't even know, honestly, if Yonah gets the message in the end, because the Sefer just ends without us being able to hear his response. But I think in emphasizing the dialogue in the Sefer and emphasizing this conversation between Yonah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God is, or Abravanel, is trying to show the time that God invests in putting his Nevi'im on the Derach Yashar and that it's out of love. Even though Yonah's dialogue with God is difficult, right, and Yonah experiences numerous challenges throughout the Sefer, he is in a relationship. Like this Sefer is emblematic of having a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu that is difficult. And Yonah's philosophy, Abravanel points out, is really actively developing, and he's actively engaging with it as the story unfolds. The next message that I think Abravanel clearly wants his readers to know is that B'nai Israel, we have a heightened sense of Bechira because of the Berit. And this Bechira is only a result of God's revelation and the mitzvot in the Torah that present us with choices every day about how we can act. So as we move into Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur, when we're going to read this Sefer together in, in Kines, I think we can have we can have two things in mind. One is, what does our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu look like? What are we actively learning? What are we actively doing to advance this relationship? What are we struggling with? How are we engaging with as, in as much of a dialogue with the Berit as we can? And the second is, what are our choices, right? What choices does the Berit afford us and how can we make better choices in the coming year? So these are questions for everyone to think about individually, but I think that for Abravanel, at least, they are essential to understanding Sefer Yonah. And in addition, these takeaways position the Sefer as an ideal one to read on Yom Kippur. So with that, we're going to end. Um, thank you all so much for another opportunity. Sorry that I went over a couple of minutes, um, but I really appreciate this opportunity to learn together. Um, I, hope I was going to say, you can, don't apologize yeah. for, for going over. You, you can continue. I think everyone, we had, we had 25 people at the beginning. We have 25 people at the end, which is a symptomatic of what a fantastic analysis that was. And you've no doubt impacted all of our uh, Yamim Noraim. Um, I mean, Thank for you. me on a personal note, I think the, the way Abarbanel, the man, writes about the national concern he had, as you said, how he says Ami, et cetera, that was very moving. Um, and again, showing the familial plot of obligation that the Bechora is, um, is, is, it's an important reminder for us and, uh, uh, you know, for Am Yisrael, really being aware of the existential obligations that come with Berit. So on a personal note, thank you very much for that. Uh, do you have some time for some questions, McKenna? Um, I can do, let's see. One minute? Like 10 minutes. I can do oh, no more than wow. 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say one minute, so that's amazing. Uh, let's just see if there's questions here in the chat. 
Uh, Asaf, you've written, can we say that Yonah specifically chose not to warn them because he knew if they didn't do Teshuvah, they wouldn't be able to exile the Jews? Yeah, no, it, it was, I remember in Yeshiva that we said that, and I didn't remember who it was, but then like right afterwards, um, we read it in the Balbanet, so whatever. That's why I wrote nice afterwards. It confirmed. Ah, I see. There we go. Um, any other questions there? It's nice. Seems to have a discussion. Uh, Rob Sher there. You can argue that the responsibility of Jews regarding Abu Dazarai is stricter due to all the injunctions of the Torah against it and the covenant we entered. But one of the seven laws for B'nai Noach is not to worship other gods. It may not be the same level as obligation for Jews, but surely the obligation is still there. Yeah. So I think that that goes yeah. to another comment that was made earlier. Like maybe Yonah, you know, was referring to that sort of, yeah, that just fundamental, fundamental tenets of Shiva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. I still think, I guess that like, I don't know, for some reason to me, that's almost like not strong enough to like, um, to explain Yonah's reaction. Like, I think that there has to be some deeper motivation there because again, like Abravanel highlights, like he's so in distress. Um, so I think you have to really make a, a very like nuanced and compelling case here to explain that. Um, but I think that's an option. Yeah. Noah, I think I saw Noah's question. What is wrong in Yonah's mind is that he thinks his thoughts are more righteous than God's. Okay, so that's interesting. So that's something that other Mepharshim um, pass, uh, or that other Mepharshim touch on. They do say that. They say that what's wrong with Sefer Yonah is that he thinks he's right. The entire Sefer is about him, like, um, you know, having to kind of humble himself to the fact that it's really God who is in charge and he doesn't fully understand how God works. Um, that's never actually something Abravanel says, at least directly. Like, Abravanel kind of goes to greater lengths than other Mefarshim, both like because of the length of his perush, but also like just I think in terms of how he's trying to frame Yonah, he goes to greater lengths to really outline Yonah's psyche in a more like nuanced way. He ne- he he ne- he just never says directly that Yonah thinks he's better than Hakadosh Baruch Hu, but other other Mefarshim are more explicit about that. Um, okay, Ohad, I'm dying to read this because it's about the animals, which again, like it really bothers me. Um, okay, this understanding can explain the sackcloth on the animals. Yonas sees this as a partial superficial teshuvah. What do animals have to do with teshuvah? Okay, good. At the end of the sefer, which again, like we just didn't have time to do everything, but at the end of the sefer, Abravanel says, okay, why do we read this on Yom Kippur? And he brings in this uh, this Gemara from Ta'anit um, that says exactly this, like, there's superficial teshuvah and there's real teshuvah. Um, and real teshuvah, you, you can't always see real teshuvah. It doesn't always like appear on the outside. It doesn't always take the form of mourning and new clothes and fasting. It, it can look different internally for other people. Um, and that's actually like what we're really supposed to get from the Sefer, says Abravanel, is that like we need to be, we need to do more internal work um, than the people of Nidved did. Um, Okay, can you explain the use of the name Elohim rather than other names of Hashem? Yeah. So what I was saying there is that, um, well, Abravanel uses, Abravanel is sensitive to that to explain that Ninveh did not have this like, um, you know, monotheistic revolution, um, that they just had a heightened sense of morality after that. So I use the parallel to Amalek, who are called Lo Yare Elohim, um, which a lot of Mefarshim take to mean they just uh, they were just an immoral society. It doesn't matter whether they were monotheistic or not. Um, they just 
you know, they did nasty things like attacking Ganesha or Elf from behind. They just didn't have like this basic sense of what is right and wrong and like what's fair. Um, so your At Elohim is kind of defined as that that basic sense that like most of us have of like what is right. You don't need somebody to tell you what's right for your At Elohim. You just kind of know. Um, it's intuitive. So I think that's like kind of what Abravanel was hi- was highlighting there. The 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 intuition of why violence is wrong. Um, and why Ninveh was so ready to accept that uh, they should stop, they should stop their violence. Great distinction. Okay, any other questions or that's it? It looks oh, like- I have one. Oh. Maybe Yona was jealous that it looked like God was favoring Ninveh, um, even at the end. I'm thinking about that for a second. I wonder if my father-in-law could unmute and explain this, what he means by this, possibly. He's risen like a jealous brother. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would have to think about that one more. Like if maybe even at the end, Yona was still concerned that other people would see what had happened and like mm. think that there was some injustice in the world. I'm not sure. That's interesting. So, oh, like a jealous brother. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting take. McKenna, thank you so, so much. Start planning your next series, please. Um, Just the source sheets alone are fantastic in the way that you've actually tried to put some diagrams there to help with the uh, communication. Uh, Really, really appreciate that because, you know, we we sit there and take the source sheet, but we don't always think about the effort that goes behind it. So thank you again. Really looking forward to the next series. Um, I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. And um, as I said, we'll, we'll be seeing you very soon. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we have next week um, Mrs. Adele Tawell, who will be giving us her series on uh, the fundamentals of grammar. Uh, and uh, uh, after that, we will have Rabbi Dweck on Shur on Yom Kippur, Shur on Sukkot. And then our October curriculum kicks off. Thank you all so much. Any questions or queries, as I said, please do reach out to us. And a huge thank you again to McKenna. Have a fantastic Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you in the chat. And we're going to continue bothering you with questions and queries um, on Discord and WhatsApp. I'm definitely going to Shul in time for Mincha this year because I won't be bored by Yona anymore. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. Indeed. Yona's taken a whole new paradigm shift for us all now. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Good night.